This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. The idea that democracy is under assault is not a new one. Scholars have been noticing the erosion of democratic norms, values, and institutions for quite some time. Democratic erosion is the process by which democratic institutions, norms, and values slowly get picked away. The process is different in many countries, and it's often hard to see because the erosion of democracy happens under the guise of a fully functioning, healthy democracy. Concerns about democratic erosion are not just limited to the United States, but also globally. Welcome to Democracy Matters. I'm your co-host, Dr. Kara ong Associate Director at the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. Co-hosting this episode with me are Dr. Abe Goldberg, Executive Director at JMU Civic, and Angelina Clapp, our Democracy Program Fellow. In this episode of Democracy Matters, we're going to talk with Melinda Adams about how prolonged questioning of the results by the Trump campaign, false claims of voter fraud by the president himself, and reluctance to accept the results could impact democratic norms and trust in democratic institutions, and what parallels she's observed this year compared to democracies she studies in Africa. We'll also talk about women's political representation and why the United States lags so far behind. And Melinda addresses what we might expect in terms of policy towards Africa under the Biden administration. Enjoy the episode. The peaceful transition of government is a hallmark of American democracy. In the majority of American elections, there has been little question that a peaceful transition of power will occur. As we know, 2020 has been different. Should we be concerned by how the prolonged questioning of results by the Trump campaign, false claims of voter fraud by the president himself, and reluctance to accept the results will affect democratic norms and trust in democratic institutions moving forward? Yeah, that's an important question. And and yes, I think we should be worrying, worried about our weakening democratic norms. You know, throughout this process, so from, you know, election day through um, the electoral college vote on Friday, you know, our institutions have held. Um, so, you know, state leaders have... Um, certified election results that are in line um, with the will of the people. We didn't have um, defectors in the Electoral College. And so I think, you know, there's some relief in the sense that that our institutions have held strong, but I think there's also a lot of nervousness um, and concern that the 2020 elections um, have weakened our institutions, have weakened some of these norms, and that in following elections, so you know, two years from now or four years from now, will our institutions be as robust? Will they be able to continue to withstand these kinds of challenges to, you know, our institutions? And um, and so I think there's there is some real concern there. Um, Dr. Adams, what parallels have you observed this year compared to democracies that you study in Africa? Yeah, I mean, I think one interesting parallel is so um, Ghana just held elections um, last week, so on December 7th. And like the United States, Ghana has a strong two party system. Um, and Ghanaian elections are notoriously close. Um, so in a- each of the last um, electoral cycle cycles and their um, presidential cycle and, and parliamentary cycle is the same as the U.S. So they usually, you know, they have elections every four years. Um, they're usually about a, a month after the U.S. elections. 
And in all of these, um, the losing candidate has generally, um, you know, made some allegations of electoral irregularities, um, you know, sort of challenged um, some of the results. But ultimately, in all of these cases, like the U.S. case, there have been peaceful transfers of power. And in the Ghanaian case, um, there's been peaceful transfers in the year 2000, in 2008, and 2016. And this is relatively rare um, across the African continent. So, um, you know, in a lot of places, um, you don't have a lot of incumbents that have lost or incumbent parties that have lost elections. Um, and in this year, um, like similar years, um, the, the losing candidate and the John Mahama from the National Democratic Congress, you know, has challenged the electoral results. Um, and I worry um, that Trump's rejection of election results in the U.S. and his failure to comply with these democratic norms of conceding um, will really kind of weaken um, these norms in places um, like Ghana and other African states where um, there may be less um, fully entrenched than they are here in the U.S. Um, and I think we've seen globally a trend towards democratic backsliding, and this is um, happening in Africa as well. So Freedom House, for example, in 2020 um, indicated that there are only seven countries in Africa that are currently um, considered free by Freedom House. And this is the lowest number since 1991, when a lot of democratic transitions and movements to multi-party elections happened um, across the continent. Um, so I think these are sort of troubling concerns in the fact that um, norms in the U.S. are weakening um, may also lead to the weakening of these norms in places where maybe democracy is less fully consolidated than it is here in the U.S. I mean, I think another sort of interesting trend to think about is that in the African context, at least um, in more recent years, um, in some cases when um, incumbents have at least maybe questioned election results or been reluctant to accept defeat, um, Regional institutions have stepped in. So, for example, in 2016 in the Gambia, um, when the um, incumbent, Jame, um, initially sort of recognized that he lost, then he sort of stepped back from that and tried to stay in power. And both the African Union, um, the kind of regional organization for the full continent, and then the Economic Community of West African States, a sub-regional body that's focused on West Africa, um, both of those organizations really stepped in um, to ensure um, that those election results were complied with and that the incumbent left power and that Adama Barrow was able to come into power. And, and I think it's interesting because in, in the U.S. case, you can't really imagine regional institutions or even international institutions playing that same role. What lessons should we learn for the future of peaceful transitions of power? I mean, I guess I think one of the most important lessons is this idea that, you know, democracy isn't something that we can take for granted, and it's not sort of a static state. So I think often we we think about, you know, we can characterize states as, oh, they're a democracy or they're a non-democracy, and we can just sort of check that off. And especially for a country like the United States that we've considered a consolidated democracy, um, we think of it as very stable and um, and don't necessarily sort of question sort of the um, whether that's something that will remain in the long term. And I think what we found is that, you know, democracy is really a process, um, that citizens have to be actively engaged, that we need to participate in elections, that we need to hold leaders accountable, and that it's really this active process rather than, um, you know, something that just exists outside of citizens. Melinda, what changes do you expect to see in policy approaches to Africa under the Biden administration? 
And I'm curious if you could speak to the policy priorities of what the Biden administration should be toward Africa. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I guess what I'm expecting is that maybe that'll be more of a change in tone than maybe in specific policies. Um, and to elaborate on that, I guess what I'm thinking is that, you know, Trump, the Trump administration has not been very actively engaged in Africa, um, but there's also been a fair amount of continuity um, with previous administrations in terms of policy priorities. Um, so maybe less change than in other parts of the world. Um, but of course, you know, there was the infamous statement in January 2018 when Trump referred to African states as, and, and Haiti as, I don't know, can I swear on this podcast? <laughs> You know, well, as shithole countries, um, the Trump administration um, had, you know, in his four years, Trump never personally went um, to Africa. And so it hasn't been um, a policy priority for the Trump administration. Um, and so I, I expect that under Biden, um, there'll be a little bit more attention to Africa, um, that there'll be a change in tone. So moving away from this more maybe pejorative view of the African continent. Um, I think there's also going to be um, perhaps more expertise, although I think, um, so for example, um, Biden has nominated Linda Thomas-Greenfield um, to serve as U.S. ambassador to the United States, and she has extensive experience in Africa. So she was the assistant secretary of state for African affairs um, from 2013 to 2017. She also served as the ambassador to Liberia, um, and she had um, diplomatic posts in Kenya, in the Gambia, in Nigeria. Um, and so I think the Biden administration will have a lot of expertise. Um, I think it's going to take a more sort of positive and engaged tone um, to focusing on Africa. And um, and I think there'll probably be a more attention to democracy. Um, so as I mentioned, you know, Africa is seeing a backsliding and an erosion of democratic norms. Um, there's been a removal of term limits in a lot of um, countries. So you have um, leaders that are contesting for a third or, or fourth term um, and sort of moving away from using term limits to, um, to really encourage um, transitions in power. In terms of policy priorities, I think there are a couple important ones, and, and many of these are um, the same as they've been under the Trump administration. So countering China. So China has been very actively engaged on the African continent. They became um, Africa's largest trading partner in 2009, surpassing the United States. Um, so I think that's continuing to be an important issue and being sort of engaged. So there's the African Growth and Opportunities Act um, that engages in trade with Africa and provides um, some um, access to U.S. markets without um, tariffs, you know, tariff-free. And, um, and I think that will continue. That's um, already been extended, I think, to 2025. Um, and of course, um, counterterrorism and fighting extremist movements in places in West Africa, um, in um, the Sahelian areas, um, and in the Horn of Africa as well, in parts of East Africa. So I think those are all going to be important issues. Um, I also think that this isn't really a policy priority, but I think it's really important for the U.S. policy towards Africa to view Africa as a place of opportunity and a place of possibility rather than just a continent that needs like our help. 
Um, and I think this is the approach that China has taken. You know, it views Africa as an economic partner and as a political partner. So economically, you have a lot of um, African states that are um, their economies are growing, um, their populations are growing. Um, they have you know youthful populations, and so seeing them as you know a, a significant potential market. Um, and also politically. So Africa has, you know, it has the numbers in international organizations. There are lots of states they can vote together. Um, and so seeing Africa as as a partner and as having um, strategic value politically and economically. So, Melinda, as a sort of a follow up and what to expect with um, American policy towards Africa, you know, we're recording this podcast as a COVID is currently being distributed, certainly across America and, and, and healthcare workers are beginning to get vaccinated. I'm wondering if you can speak to what we can expect with COVID vaccination in Africa as far as distribution and what role does um, the United States have in supporting that, if at all? Done it. I mean, I do think that we're seeing inequalities in, in access to vaccines. So, you know, just following news that you know, a lot of the early vaccines from Pfizer, from Moderna are compl- are getting, um, you know, are the access is really to first world countries, you know, global north. So the United States and Europe um, are really ensuring that their populations will have access to the vaccine. So I think we are seeing really important inequalities in access to the vaccine. There's also the challenge. So for example, with the Pfizer vaccine of having to be stored at such a cold temperature and, you know, to what extent um, will that make it far more challenging to distribute the vaccine in a lot of African states where you might not have access to the cold storage um, areas and then, you know, just being able to ensure regular electricity supply, particularly in rural areas. So I think, um, so I think these are all really important challenges for for COVID. I know that um, China has committed to providing some vaccines um, from the, the ones they're developing to African states as part of their partnership, and I believe other states have made some commitments as well. Um, but I think we are seeing these these global inequalities play out in access to the vaccine, or at least early access to the vaccine. But when I saw that, when I saw the the um, refrigeration requirements for the Pfizer, you know, it really is going to be challenging for a lot of places around the world. Not- and I know I was listening to, um, I think it's the China Africa podcast, and they were talking about how China has committed to um, providing vaccines. But there is also a concern that, you know, there could be potential negative ramifications if those vaccines um, aren't effective or if they can't be stored in a way that allows them to be effective. Um, and so there, you know, there's certainly um, worries about how to do that. Well, Melinda, there's been much celebration and discussion of the fact that Kamala Harris has broken the glass ceiling by becoming the first Indian American black female vice president of the United States. Um, Despite recent gains 
uh, in, in political representation, however, the United States still ranks 106th overall on political gender parity, according to the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, your expertise is in this area, and you've conducted substantial research on women's political representation globally, um, along with other colleagues at JMU, I should add. <laughs> um, I wonder if you can share how the United States compares to other countries in terms of women's political representation, and why do we lag so far behind? Yeah, I mean, those are great questions. Um, you know, in terms of, so the Interparliamentary Union provides rankings um, globally um, based on the percentage of women in the lower house of parliament, um, so the, the House of Representatives in the U.S. case. And according to current IPU data, so this is based on the 2018 election for the United States, um, so the U.S. ranked um, 87 out of 190 countries included in the IPU world rankings. Um, and so women currently in the House, so again, this will change um, a little bit, um, in January held, I think, 23.4% of the seats in the House. And this is lower than the Africa regional average. So if we just look at the average of African states, um, it's 24.8% um, according to the Interparliamentary Union data. So um, even if we just look at Africa, on average, the U.S. is doing um Worse, um, and then when we look at the the leading countries in Africa, the U.S. is far far behind. So the country that ranks first in the world in terms of women's parliamentary representation is Rwanda, um, with sixty one point three percent women in their legislature. Um, South Africa, Namibia, Senegal, and Mozambique all have over forty percent women in their legislatures as well. Um, so in terms of like formal political representation. Um, you know, the U.S. Is, is far behind global leaders. And I think this is for a number of reasons. I think the first one really is um, that the countries that tend to have high numbers of women in parliament um, have some sort of gender quota. Um, so these are either legislated quotas um, that apply to all political parties and all candidates, um, you know, um, lists or, or nominations um, within, you know, the um, elections, or party quotas. So these are um, voluntary quotas that are adopted um, by one or more parties within um, the political system. So for example, South Africa, um, the African National Congress has um, a voluntary party quota, but because the ANC is the dominant party, it, it has a huge effect on the number of women who are elected um, to political positions in South Africa. I mean, we can see sort of the dramatic effects of quotas. So for example, Senegal adopted a gender quota in 2010. And in the first elections that were held after the quota, women's representation pretty much doubled. So it went from 22.7%, so pretty close to what the United States is at, to 42.7% in a single election. So I think gender quotas are really critical. Um, and the countries that tend to, to do the best have some sort of quota. Um, electoral systems can also matter. So a lot of the scholarship will look at um, proportional representation and how that can um, make it easier for women um, to increase you know, their representation in, in parliament than um, first past the post electoral systems that are common you know, in our house seats that are single member districts. Um, and then, of course, they're just... Other factors, so the high cost of politics within the United States, so it takes a lot of money and, and that can create additional challenges for women. Um, and, and there's been a lot of attention 
um, within both um, academic scholarship and a lot of organizations working to promote women's access to political positions on violence against women in politics. So some of this is physical violence um, and threats, um, but a lot of it is also more um, psychological violence that can come through social media, um, the way media treat women. Um, and so those sorts of things can make it more difficult for women to, to step forward. Dr. Adams, you have found that even as women's political representation has increased in Africa, for example, women continue to encounter exclusionary masculinized environments. Can you share how such environments affect women policymakers and what can be done to facilitate the work of women policymakers in these environments? Yeah, thank you. So I've done some research with Kristen Wiley and with John Chaparral, and we found that you know, when women enter politics, they still face a lot of challenges. And this can be common, particularly in places where you have gender quotas and you have this influx of women, um, but they're coming into an environment that has traditionally been dominated by men. And there are certain, you know, norms that continue to exclude them. So um, they face a range of informal barriers. So these could be like old boys networks, um, you know, which they're women may be excluded from informal meetings. So that might be, you know, if they, you know, I think in the U.S. we often talk about, you know, there could be meetings over golf or over um, sporting events, but this can happen in lots of different ways. So um, meetings that happen in the evenings in people's homes where maybe um, women don't feel comfortable going or they're not invited to go. Um, And so decisions are often made in these informal environments. Um, that um, exclude women from, you know, where power is really located. Um, there's also also often norms of seniority, engendered patterns of appointments that influence like where women serve, so what committees they're on, what leadership roles they hold within the legislature, for example. Um, so we argue that women's legislative caucuses, um, and so these are organizations that bring women together, uh, generally across party lines. And so some of these caucuses are informal, um, so they don't necessarily have a policy role and they're not like formalized within the legislature, um, but they um, bring women together to share um, experiences, to um, be able to provide advice to one another, um, and that they can really facilitate women's policymaking and also help women Um, confront some of these gender norms. So in some places, as I mentioned, these are pretty informal, um, and it just brings women together to kind of share stories, share advice, um, talk about common experiences. But in other places, they're more formal, and they actually facilitate um, making policies, and particularly policies that might address um, women's issues, which of course is a is a big question of what you know what are women's issues, but sort of gender equity issues um, that um, cross party lines and and allow sort of um, collaboration across parties. You know, Ghana is a place where I've studied some of this, and you know their their caucus is pretty weak um, because they have um, very um, they have strong party systems and a lot of like party line voting. So it's very difficult um, for individual legislators to, to cross party lines and to, and they don't really write legislation. Legislation comes from the executive branch and from the ministries. Um, but even in this context, um, the caucus has done some things. So it's, you know, raised money for, um, for some issues that are important to women. So like breast cancer screening and publicizing that. And they have, um, 
been involved to some extent in publicizing and advocating for a draft um, affirmative action gender equality law um, that's been in process for many years. And so um, the Women's Caucus has made public statements um, really trying to sort of push the, um, the party in power to move forward with that legislation. Melinda, I wonder if I can ask a follow-up question here. Can you speak to how international institutions and international networks and organizations might work with domestic women's movements and coalitions or legislators? Yeah, I um, thanks. That's a great question, and and I think that inter- international institutions, um, you know, so there's. Various like the National Democratic Institute, NDI, um, has provided support for the formation of some of these women's le- legislative caucuses, um, particularly in places like um, Somalia. Um, they've facilitated networking across like state boundaries, so allowing women in um, Somalia to visit. I think it was women in Uganda to learn about um, their caucus and how it's worked and um, and to then take those lessons back as they created their own um, caucus. So I think regional institutions can play an important role in providing some of those resources. Um, regional bodies like um, SADC, the um, Su- Southern African Development Community, um, have also facilitated opportunities for you know women legislatures from a variety of Southern African states to come together and then share lessons, you know, cross-nationally. Um, so just like women's legislative caucuses provide this um, opportunity for women to talk to one another, share lessons, share experiences, um, regional and international organizations provide an opportunity for this information sharing across states. Um, and I think Krista and I have talked about it as sort of a boosting mechanism. So you have to have like domestic actors are important. Um, so in terms of like even adopting gender quotas, so work by um, Eileen Tripp and Alice King have shown that um, women's movements and particularly um, coalitions um, that bring together domestic women's organizations are really important for the adoption of gender quotas. And again, I think for um, the creation of women's legislative caucuses, it really, you have to have those actors working within that domestic political system pushing for these institutions, but outside actors can provide support to them, um, both in terms of, you know, providing um, some some lessons and some, you know, policies that can be adopted, um, but also, especially for international actors, providing some of those resources that facilitate that work. We've been joined today by Dr. Melinda Adams, a wonderful colleague and friend uh, who has given us an enlightening assessment of what to expect um, in Africa and really what we can learn from Africa moving forward. Melinda, we we do ask a question of all of our guests um, to end the podcast, and we're going to address it to you. What would you do to strengthen our democracy? I guess... I'm going to say two things. I mean, the first echoes something I I mentioned earlier, but I think that, you know, we can't take democracy for granted and we have to be actively engaged, um, that it's a process and it requires all of us as citizens to be actively engaged in that process of participating and holding our leaders accountable. Um, But I also think related to what we just talked about in terms of women's political representation, um, that we also have to think about increasing um, how inclusive our political institutions are, and particularly our representative institutions like our legislatures. Um, So whether we're talking about the United States 
or we're looking at you know some African states like Ghana that we often find that most elected representatives that they're primarily male that they generally come from you know, dominant ethnic groups that they're generally wealthy and they're usually um, middle-aged or older um, and that you know we really have to think about you know if we have this narrow slice of our population um, holding most of these elected positions what is their ability to really represent um, the entire country, um, you know, that they don't have firsthand knowledge of the needs and interests of many citizens. Um, and so I think about some of the work of scholars like Rainbow Murray, um, and she she talks about, you know, how we conceptualize merit and how um, it's often gendered, um, the ways that we um, that we really think about merit. Um, and, and I just pulled out a quote from her work, but she said, you know, if we truly want our politicians to be the best and brightest, then we need to reopen the talent pool to the whole of society and use criteria that actually reflect the capacity to represent the needs of others. And so I think we really need to, to increase the inclusivity of our representative institutions.